If you would, please open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. The Gospel of John, chapter 15. Jesus had lived the last three years with a group of 12 men, and he poured everything he had into those men. He knew that when he went to the cross and then rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, it would be those 12 men left behind, left to carry on the work. And so he poured everything into them. He he spent a lot of time with them, but the day was going to come where Jesus would go to the cross, and he had to look those men in the eye and tell them, I'm leaving you. Came like a bombshell to them. They weren't expecting that. It was almost, what, you're firing us as disciples? Didn't we do a good enough job? Why are you leaving us? What's going to happen to this whole thing that you've started, Jesus? What's going to happen to the work? What's going to happen to our relationship with you? And so much in the way that a family has sometimes a very serious discussion around a dinner table. You ever been part of those serious discussions around a dinner table as a family? Jesus, around a dinner table with his disciples, had a very in-depth and exciting discussion with them, assuring them of what it was going to be like after he left them. This comprises five chapters in the Gospel of John, 13 through 17. Those five chapters are Jesus' farewell discourse and his final prayer for the disciples. Right now, we're in the middle of it. We're in chapter 15. And in the section we look at today, Jesus is going to assure them that even though he's departing to heaven, he's still going to have a relationship with them. It isn't the end. Matter of fact, in some ways, the relationship is going to be closer than ever. Let's take a look here, starting at verse 1, John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Jesus spoke to his disciples probably as they stood around the tables where they had just ate, sort of preparing to leave. But you know those kind of long goodbyes after a dinner? This is one of them. And as Jesus pours out his heart to his disciples in that long goodbye, he wants them to be assured of something. He says, men, understand this. I am the true vine. Did you see those words from verse 1 of chapter 15? As he spoke to them, he used the picture of a grape vine, the branches that come from the vine, and the clusters of grapes that came from the branches and the vine above it. Now, this would be a very familiar picture to the disciples. First of all, because in that part of the world, ancient Israel, at that time, there were grapevines everywhere. People loved to grow things and to make it productive. They needed food. And they couldn't just run down to the supermarket, so they had to grow it wherever they could. There were grapevines everywhere. That's one way it was familiar. A second way it was familiar was that Israel was pictured to be either a grapevine or a vineyard many times in the Old Testament. It was a figure so familiar to the Jews of this time that on one wall of the great temple, they had an ornate golden decoration of a vine and branches and grape clusters. And they said, this represents Israel, this great golden decoration on the wall of the temple. But there were also some rabbis who taught that the Messiah would be the vine. Jesus clears all of this up, and he goes, guys, let me tell you what. 
I am the true vine. Israel is a vine in a sense, but I'm the true vine. And I speak to you as the one who is holy and pure and reliable. You see, Jesus used this picture because it emphasizes absolute dependence. Think about the different ways that God illustrates his relationship to us. You have the illustration of a shepherd and sheep. It is possible for sheep to survive without a shepherd. They may be pretty nervous in their survival, but they can survive without a shepherd. Friends, a cluster of grapes cannot survive without the vine. A child could conceivably survive without its parents. And sometimes Jesus uses that illustration. But he says, no, I want to give an illustration that expresses the absolute dependence and the constant connection. Friends, don't you see what he's saying? He's saying, I'm leaving you. I'm about to go to the cross and then to the tomb and then rise from the tomb and I'm going to ascend to heaven. I'm leaving you, but we will still remain connected the way that a cluster of grapes is connected to the vine that is above it. We're still going to be connected. Now, This is a very important principle that we need to think about just for a moment. It reminds us of something that I think we have to think about all the time. The fact of this, that Jesus is not just added to the life of the disciple. He becomes the source of their life. If you think of a grapevine, you don't think of something that the vine is just added to the cluster of grapes. Friends, those two things are so connected that there's no way that they can exist without that common connection. In the same way, Jesus says, it's not enough for me to be added to your life. I have to be the source of your life. Look, sometimes it's easy, and sometimes we preachers are the worst at this. We present Jesus as if he were a supplement that you add to your life. We're kind of used to that concept of the supplement, right? Drink this vitamin supplement, man. It'll do you a lot of good. Uh, Add this to your laundry. It'll really help clean things. Uh, Supplement with this. Add to this. It'll really improve things. Jesus says, I am not content to be a supplement to your life. I must be the source of your life. Just the way that the vine is the source of life for the cluster of grapes. And there's a great result from that. Verse 2, he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, let me add this. This phrase, takes away, in verse 2, I don't think that's the best translation. I think a better translation of that ancient verb that's translated there, takes away, is actually to lift up. That's a more literal translation of the verb. The idea there is that what the vinter does, is that what they call somebody who works on grapevines? A vinter? Okay, I used that first service and I did not know if I was saying the right word or not. The vinter takes the vine and the first thing he does is he lifts it up to take it off the ground. You know, grapes are not like squash that grow on the ground. You have to lift them up. You drive around and you see the vineyards here in wine country. What do you see? You, you see like uh, cords or, or, or wires or structures on which the vines grow because they're supposed to grow up off the ground. What is the first thing that the farmer does, what the vinter does with the grapevine? Is he says, okay, I got to get these vines and train them up on the wires. He lifts them up. That's the first thing he does. The second thing he does, notice, he prunes. 
Verse 2, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. It's like this. The vintner says, I got to care for this vine. It needs to bear fruit. So first I'm going to lift it up. Then I'm going to prune off the dead wood. Now, friends, if that grapevine could talk, what would it say when the farmer is doing that work upon it? Probably wouldn't be very happy with it. Ouch, it hurts to lift me up. You're stretching me. I don't like to be stretched this way. Can't you just let me grow wherever I want to grow? No, the vintner says. He says, I've got to lift you up and grow you in the right direction. Then the vintner takes a look at the vine and goes, there's some dead wood on this vine and I've got to cut it away because the dead wood saps the life of the vine and makes it unproductive. And what do you think that vine would say when the vintner comes along and clips off the dead wood? It would probably scream, ouch! You can't clip off my dead wood. That hurts. I like my dead wood. But the venture says, no, no, no. I know what will produce fruit. Do you see that Jesus works in the life of the disciple just that way? Now, some of you, you're nodding your head because you know this. You know what it's like to have God pick you up and train you in the way you should go. You know what it's like to have God cut off some dead wood in your life. You weren't asking him to do it. But I don't think the grapevine asks for the dead wood to be cut away. He comes along and he just cuts it off because he says, you are my vine. I'm going to train you the way you should go. I'm going to cut off the dead wood. This is the work of God in our life. And a lot of he does through his word. Look at it, verse 3. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. He cleans us. He blesses us. He does this lifting and pruning work through his word so much of the time. Now going on to verse 4, he says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Jesus is emphasizing the mutual relationship. He says, you abide in me and I will abide in you. There will be this mutual relationship. When I ascend to heaven, disciples, we're not going to be further apart. We're going to be closer together. This abiding relationship will continue. But please notice, as Jesus exhorts them to abide, he is indicating that abiding is a choice for the disciple to make. Friends, abiding is a choice. What do you choose to do if you want to abide in Jesus? My friend, it is not complicated. What do you do if you want a relationship with anybody? Well, I'll just throw out a few things. This is not an exhaustive list, but just here's a few things. Uh, If you want a relationship with somebody, you talk to them. How about that? If they've written things, you read what they've written to you. How about that? Um, If you want a relationship with somebody, you do whatever you can to get along with them and to recognize your place with them. In other words, if they're a superior, you submit to them. If you want to get along with somebody and develop a relationship, you listen to them. Friends, over and over again, this is very simply what it means. You look to spend time with somebody that you want to develop a closer relationship with it. Abiding is not this super mystical thing. 
You don't have to go into a special hut and assume a special position and give a special chant or phrase. That's not abiding. That's mystical weirdness. Abiding in Jesus is simply saying, Jesus, I want to connect with you. I want to talk to you. I want to hear from you. I want to think about you. I want to do what you tell me to do. And as I do these things with a conscious effort, I will abide in you and you will abide in me. And my relationship with you will be close. It'll be like that between a vine and a branches because no more was Israel to be the vine. Jesus says, I am the vine. Don't look to relate to God by connecting to Israel anymore, but the Messiah comes along and says, I establish a new covenant. I am the vine. You are the branches. And verse 5 says, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. There is an evidence to abiding, and it's the bearing of fruit. You can tell a healthy or an unhealthy branch just by the passage of time. If a branch is healthy, what will it do? It'll bear fruit. If a branch is unhealthy, what will it do? It will not bear fruit, or the fruit will be very bad. Now, when we talk about bearing fruit in the Christian life, what do we even mean? Friends, I want you to consider this carefully. We're not talking about mystical things when we come talk about bearing fruit. Bearing fruit is very practical. The Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is, and I'll just begin the list, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, on and on. The Bible tells us very practically in character what the fruit of the Spirit is. If your, mark is, if your life is marked by love, that's the fruit of the Spirit. By peace, that's the fruit of the Spirit. By joy, that's the fruit of the Spirit. But by patience, that's the fruit of the Spirit. By kindness, that's the fruit of the Spirit. We're not talking about mystical experiences. We're not talking about lightning bolts from fingertips. No, we're talking about demonstrated character of Jesus in the life. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And you can look at somebody's life and look and see if they have those marks of the fruit of the Spirit to see whether or not they're abiding in Jesus. Now, when we talk about this, I think it's easy to give a misconception. When we just lay out that principle, a healthy or an unhealthy branch becomes evident in time, it can have a bad result. And the bad result is this. It can make people focus on the fruit in their life. Am I bearing fruit in my life? I don't know. What's the condition of the grapes? Are they juicy? Do they taste good? Are they sour? Are they big? Is there enough fruit? Do I have enough fruit? No, 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 listen. Friends, I want you to back away and just calm down and not worry about bearing fruit. Worry about abiding. If you abide, you'll bear fruit. It just happens. You abide in him, the fruit will come forth. That's how God engineered it. So yes, God wants us to look for fruit, and it's a valid evidence of whether or not a person abides, but our focus is not to be on fruit bearing. Our focus is to be on abiding in Jesus. Because he says, verse five, without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Now, it isn't that it is impossible to have activity without Jesus. You can have activity without Jesus but you can't accomplish anything really successful for the kingdom of God without Jesus. If you don't abide in him, you'll accomplish nothing. 
Sometimes I worry about this for us as a congregation. Because we're the kind of congregation that can fall into a trap. We know how to do things. Easter at the sunken gardens, we know how to do that, don't we? We've been doing it for so long and so good, it's easy to just have a machinery, a mechanism that gets it done. So what's one of the things we think about before Easter at the sunken gardens? We think about this very consciously. We got to get on our face before God and pray that we rely upon Jesus and not just depend on prior success, on prior machinery, on established mechanisms, but find a way to trust Jesus for it all over again because without him, we can do nothing. You can be active, you can put on a show, you can put on a production, but really accomplish something to God's glory and for the good of the world, you can't do it without that constant reliance upon Jesus Christ. Now, if you fail to abide, there's a price. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, for so you will be my disciples. Friends, these are strong words. Jesus wants to make it very clear that as far as the disciple is concerned, abiding is not an option. Um, Oh, you're a disciple of Jesus? Well, are you one of the abiding disciples or the non-abiding disciples? It doesn't work like this. To be a disciple of Jesus is to abide in him. Because if you don't abide in him, look at what happens, verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. Now, please notice the phrasing. I think it's important. Jesus did not say, if anyone does not bear good enough fruit. Because honestly, only Jesus can measure the fruit. You and I, we can in some regard, but in the ultimate way, only can Je- cannot only Jesus measure the fruit. He knows, he perceives, he sees it. You and I see it only imperfectly, but Jesus sees it perfectly. But what Jesus says is if you don't abide, there's no hope. You'll be cast out as a branch and withered. And eventually, they'll gather them and throw them into the fire. And friends, I want you to think how these words would have impacted the 11 disciples that Jesus just said them to. There was one in their midst, Judas, who had already gone out. And they said, he was one of those who did not abide. His destiny is destruction. Judas is a perfect example of one of these branches that withers and is cast out and, and is burned. The emphasis is very plain. There are no true disciples who do not abide in Jesus. The branch must remain connected to the vine if it is to have life. And if it does not, it's of no lasting good. It's only fit to be burned. On the positive side, look at verse 7. Verse 6 is a very strong warning. Verse 7 Jesus said, but if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Notice the first thing that he repeats. He talks about his words abiding in us. 
Friends, one of the ways that Jesus abides in us is by his word abiding in us. And that means we need to be committed to his word. We need to be faithful to his word. Those people say, well, Jesus is a pretty good guy, but he was wrong about a lot of things. You're not abiding in his word. You're rejecting his word. But, but if we abide in him and his words abide in us, then something very special happens. Look at it again in verse 7. He says, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Jesus connected abiding to the idea of answered prayer. One of the ways we can know we're really abiding in Jesus is we see prayer answered in our life. For some of you, a great big warning light just started flashing in your mind. And you think, when's the last time I know that God answered a prayer in my life? Friends, I'm not saying that the only reason for unanswered prayer is a failure to abide, but it is certainly a reason, maybe a chief reason for unanswered prayer. If you never see prayer answered in your life, it's a very valid thing for you to say, Jesus, if I'm not abiding in you, show me. But friends, you you know how to abide in something. You know how to have a relationship with somebody. You talk to them. You listen to them. You spend time with them. You do things together with them. Do that with Jesus, and you'll abide in him. Verse 8, this is how my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. That's the purpose of doing it, bringing glory to God by the bearing of fruit, not glory to the disciple. Now verse nine. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Friends, when I was preparing for this week's message, I was tempted to just talk about verse 9. Nothing else but verse 9. Did you read that? May I read that again for you? Just this phrase. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. May I explain something to you about how Jesus loves you? I want you to think about how God the Father loves God the Son. Big love or small love? I think pretty big love, don't you? Can anybody doubt that God the Father loves God the Son? That God the Father looks at his own dear precious Son and sees the obedience and sees the glory and sees the commitment and sees everything and just delights in him because he's his Son. The Father looks at the Son and is totally in love with the Son, completely. Do you realize what Jesus says here? He says, as the Father loves the Son, that's how I love you. Jesus didn't say this. He didn't say, as the mother loves the child, so I love you. Now, that's pretty good love. He didn't say, as the husband loves the wife, that's how I love you. That's pretty good love. He he didn't say... uh, as the, uh, as the scholar loves his books. He didn't say, as the soldier loves his buddy. He didn't say, like the addict loves his junk. No, my friends, he used it in the strongest way possible. He says, as the father loves the son, 
That's how I love you. Friends, the Father loves the Son with a love that has no beginning, no end. It's close. It's personal. It's without measure. It's unchanging. That's how Jesus loves you. And that's why he looks to you. Look at what it says in verse 9. And he says to you and he says to me, abide in my love. Do you understand what he's talking about? His love is out there for you. But you and I, we have the choice of whether or not we're going to abide in it. He gives you that choice. Matter of fact, you say, well, Jesus, just make me abide in your love. Well, that's not the love then, is it? Love that forces itself upon another person? I don't think that's love. No, he puts his love out there and then he looks to you and he says, abide in my love. And do you realize how significant that he says that he says that? Listen, there's more to Jesus than love. He's full of power. He's full of wisdom. He's full of strength. He's full of knowledge. But Jesus didn't say, abide in my power. He didn't say, abide in my wisdom. He, he didn't say, abide in my, all those other things, my knowledge, even though that would be great. But if he could pick one characteristic that he wanted us to abide in, he said, disciples, abide in my love, my love for you. And again, just the saying of this shows that abiding in his love is a choice. The love is there. It cannot be denied. But our receiving grace and goodness from that love, we choose to abide in it. Then notice what he says in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Again, I love this. It's so plain. It's so simple. So often, we want the measure of our love to Jesus to be a mystical experience. We want a power coming from our fingertips. That really shows that God loves me and that I love him. Jesus says, no. How about this? How about keeping my commandments? We say, Jesus, help me to keep your commandments. Help me to demonstrate my love back to you. Verse 11, and we'll end with verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Well, friends, there's at least three big parts to that verse. Number one, these things I have spoken to you. What things? What things did he speak to us? Well, he spoke to us things of being connected to Jesus for life and bearing fruit. He spoke to us things of being pruned to produce more kingdom fruit. He spoke to us things of abiding in the word of Jesus and in the love of Jesus. He spoke to us of things of keeping his commandments. He said, I've told you all this. Why? To really bum you out. That's why I told you these things. No, no. He said, these things I've spoken to you. I've told you all this. Why? So that my joy will be in you and that your joy will be full. First of all, notice, Jesus spoke of his joy. My joy will be in you. I think it's wonderful that none of the disciples broke in at this moment and said, your joy, what are you talking about? You're the most miserable guy we've ever seen. Because Jesus wasn't like that. Oh, friends, I know, I know. The Bible tells us that he was a man of sorrows well acquainted with grief. Jesus knew the sorrow and the tragedy of humanity. He knew it. He knew it and it's deep in his soul. But at the same time, in one of these things, it's just a paradox of the power and the nature of God. At the very same time, Jesus had a joy that was so powerful and apparent in his life that it blew other people's minds. 
They go, your joy? Jesus lived the kind of life full of a joy that if you saw it, you'd say, I want some of that. Whatever that guy has, I want it too. I want that kind of joy. I want it to fill my life because Jesus said that we could have his joy. But friends, you are never gonna have his joy as a vaguely committed Christian. It's just not gonna happen. If that's you, if you are one of those vaguely committed Christians, I feel for you, I honestly feel for you, you are in a miserable place. Honestly. You don't love sin enough to really enjoy it. Maybe you used to, but you don't need more. You, you don't love sin enough to really enjoy it But let's face it, you haven't surrendered to Jesus enough to really live in his joy. You're caught in a terrible middle ground and you don't feel at home anywhere. To you, Jesus says, why don't you wave that white flag of surrender? Why don't you just surrender to me and then what can happen? You can move out of that place of being the vaguely committed Christian and you can move into the place of having fullness of joy. He wants his joy to remain in us. And then look at the last phrase, verse 11, that your joy may be full. That's the result of abiding in Jesus' love. He didn't come to make us miserable. He came to fill our life with joy. Now look, it's not the same as having a comfortable life. It's not the same as having an easy life. But it is the same as having a truly good life before God, having his joy fill our life. You and I, we need this. We need the joy of Jesus to fill our life. What do you think it was like for Jesus? Does anybody in this room think that Jesus woke up in the morning saying, oh, another day, oh, I don't want to get out of bed? (laughs) Or do you think it was something like this for Jesus waking up? Father, another day, what are we going to do today? What's in front of us today, Lord? Because he knew what it was to abide in the love of the Father. Just like you can wake up in the morning and really have a heart so filled with Jesus that you wake up in the morning and say, Jesus, what is it today? Jesus, what are we going to do today? Because you're abiding in him. Let me close with this. If your Christian life is mostly marked by misery, Something's wrong. Isn't this evident? One of the outgrowths of abiding is joy. If your Christian life is mostly miserable, something's wrong. Now, I'll say this. If your Christian life is never bringing some misery into your life, something's also wrong. Really? No, I'm being dead serious about that. Being a follower of Jesus Christ sometimes means being confronted with your own sin and failure and weakness in a way that makes us very uncomfortable. If you're never experiencing that, something's wrong. But if your Christian life is mostly miserable, mm -mm, not good, not right, you're not doing it right, you need to take a few steps back and say, Jesus, I need to abide in you. You promised me fullness of joy. I need that in my life. Father, this is our prayer. Our prayer is simple, Lord. 
We pray that you would show us, that you would work it in us, what it really means to abide in you. Lord, to talk to you, to listen to you, to spend time with you, to do things together with you. And Jesus, as we abide in you, as your word abides in us, as we, Lord, increasingly keep your commandments, fill us with your joy. And Lord, I want to pray in particular for anyone here this morning who is just being robbed of the joy that Jesus has portioned for them in their life with you. Would you beat back, Lord, the thief that has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy? And would you restore joy? Joy in the life of disciples this morning. And Lord, finally, I I pray for the vaguely committed Christians in our midst. Move them off the vague commitment. Persuade them, Lord, to be fully sold out for you and to find joy therein. Thank you, God, for your presence among us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.